from the Rose City in beautiful downtown Portland, Oregon, home of bikes, books, bridges, beards, food carts, startups, and indie coffee. Grab your dog, snatch your hammer and beer, leave your umbrella at home. Welcome to the Tiny House Podcast. It's the Tiny House Podcast. I'm Perry. That was the best clap we've had in a long time. Yeah, this yeah. is MJ. And this is Mark. Yeah, that was almost at the same time. It was almost Although I like there was a panic in Perry's eyes when he realized, oh, the mic is like two feet away from my <laughs> mouth. <laughs> so it was a louder clap yeah. than normal. Mm-hmm. It was a sound, the sound of three hands, six hands clapping. Very sad. sounded just like one eight. <laughs> Michelle. How's your tiny house living experience, Perry? We haven't talked about that in a while. I was hoping that we wouldn't talk about Uh-oh. it. Well, that's okay. You can, you, a, no, can okay. you can just say it's great it's and we'll great. move on. Yes. Okay. We can talk about it off there. It's great. We <laughs> no. move on. We move on. It is really great. I just don't want to talk about it in public. Anymore. Uh-oh. <laughs> that's okay. Had people showing up like city no, commissioners? No. Tenant no. Like Michelle? <laughs> no. no. <laughs> it just is what it is. It is what it is. So yeah, it's been a, it's been a good week so far. Lots of good... Uh, episodes we have in the can and looking forward to talking with our guest today. We're a little short on time, so we're going to jump right into it. Um, we have a famous, a person who's famous even beyond the tiny house. Super. Like super he's famous. super famous. Um, Ross Chapin. Cha- Chapin or Chapin? Chapin. Chapin. Yes, Chapin is, um, is responsible for coining the term pocket neighborhood. Which has a specific definition I didn't know, um, which is a group of small homes that face each other across a common um, courtyard or open Mm. space. And we're going to get more into that, I'm sure. Um, But Ross is also recognized for his iconic architecture. uh, Beautiful, actually. And um, Mark and I had the pleasure to visit one of his neighborhoods here in Oregon. And we were, frankly, blown away by that. Oh, it was fantastic. It was amazing. And so we just had to have Ross uh, on the show and talk about his pocket neighborhoods and also get his perspective on the, the tiny house movement and what, what it's all about from his view. And so I'd love to... But before we introduce oh, him, sure. can we talk about our Salish Pond experience? Oh, is there sure. enough of a story there? Shh, is there? Oh, yeah, there yeah. is. I mean, yeah. Go ahead. Well, so we, we'd heard about how fantastic this community was. And we knew it wasn't tiny houses in the, you know, 200 square foot sense, but we heard these were just beautifully designed. It was an incredible neighborhood. We've heard that from a couple of people. I can't remember who. Oh, one was the, the mayor of Milwaukee, mm-hmm. Oregon. Mm-hmm. Anyway, <laughs> so Perry and I went out there and parked uh, and, and just went and started to explore it. And there's, I don't remember the exact count of homes. There's a dozen-ish, yeah, 12, 12 or 15, 15 somewhere yeah. in there. Just yeah. beautiful, beautiful homes. Um, and it felt, uh, and it was on, you know, lake. on some water yeah. uh, and it felt beachy is a good way to put it. Yeah. It had this, it, in addition to the homes and each home had those, what do you call those doors? Oh, French. The, no, no, the double thing. Dutch. Dutch, Dutch doors. It, it had yep. a, they had Dutch doors and they had in between the houses and this real small lake that it overlooked. They had this beautiful common cabin. Remember that cabin? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. It yep. was so beautiful. Yep. So we were. Mark and I were walking. We were not invited to walk in this property. We basically trespassed. Yes. And we were walking through. We were walking along the Like it was downtown Portland. We're just walking around, (laughs) looking in the homes. Yes, we were looking in people's homes. And there were these two two elderly ladies sitting on their porch looking at us. And 
I that elderly. Name, she, he means younger than us, but whatever. Were they younger than yeah, us? Yeah, yeah, oh, they were a neighborhood watcher. Oh, okay. yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they were. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, it, we, we, we got to one end of the property, and when we turned around and came back, they came up to us. <laughs> Which we were kind of saying, um, we, as we got to the end, we were going, you know, we look kind of suspicious here. Exactly. Just looking <laughs> out homes. Exactly. <laughs> but when they came up to us, they were really, really friendly, as if perhaps they have had this experience before. They were friendly after we explained ourselves. Well, yeah, they I mean, wanted to know what yeah, we were hey, there guys, for. But can then, we help yeah. you find somebody? Yeah, yeah. Should we call 911? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> no, they didn't say that. <laughs> and so they, they started asking us questions and we started answering them. And what was really amazing to me about this neighborhood was that the houses turn over so infrequently. Mm. And when they do, they're gone in a snap. Yep. So that's just a test to the to the allure and the attractiveness of not only of the architecture itself, but of the, the design. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, that was very good. So, Ross, we'd love to welcome you. We, we are going to welcome you to the show. <laughs> hey, this is great. You guys, you guys have a good time with this. I love it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we, we tried to. We've been drinking great. already. Yes. Well, thanks for welcoming me to the conversation. I think this is a, a big conversation with some wonderful um, stories all along. And I think this is why it's got such a universal appeal. I totally, we totally agree. And it's, what do you think about, so it's, it seems like neighborhoods have gone from um, these large tracks, and I know that's not how they began, but in, in recent times, from these large, gigantic communities down to what you, you've been um, famous for popularizing, and now going into these tiny house communities. What do you think about the increasingly smaller footprint of, of domesticity? Well, well, a couple of things. I think that we should be um, delineated between uh, house and uh, neighborhood or sub-neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And I think that I'm working on uh, both the uh, looking at what is enough, what is... Um, what can you really bring alive? Uh, how, how much house do you need? And that's different than how much, uh, what's your relationship to the surrounding neighborhood? When I began uh, work in architecture, I finished architecture school and I jumped right into construction um, and worked on designing um, some houses and building that were um, living large. Uh, I was not interested in anything that uh, had all this grand appeal to it in terms of, oh, aren't I successful or important or whatever. I was absolutely appalled at duplicating uses of space, having a formal dining room that's hardly used, mm-hmm. having a living room that's for impression, you know, having a porch that's just a faux porch, just a key fumbling porch or some grand <laughs> foyer that that really had no use other than trying to impress the people driving by. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like it, it's, it struck my body wrong. It's like, you know, uh, I don't know. When I take a look at, at how do we live really? Now, how do we shape our environments to how we live really? And when we look at that, uh, we've got a whole different perspective. Uh, I think we've been somehow or another uh, duped into believing that we need bigger and bigger uh, and we need to have, you know, impress other people. Mm. You take a look at most of the people on the planet throughout eons, really. 
And we never, ever have lived with such um, outrageous, I don't have the words for it. You got it. Yeah. It's, it's crazy. And I, and I think that this, this uh, we might, you know, trace the roots of this in a more anthropological way back, you know, maybe hundreds of years, looking at how we somehow claim ownership to parts of the world. And uh, and we barricade ourselves from the world around us. Well, that goes way back because yes, we do need to barricade ourselves from the world that is dangerous. Mm. Um, you know, the lions and tigers and marauding uh, invaders. Great, I get it. Um, but the idea for that to continue through the uh, staunch independence of uh, the American um, experience, and especially since maybe World War Two when the automobile took over and then um, uh, we've got air conditioners coming in, which takes us off our porches and our porches become redundant. Mm. And we're trying to house thousands upon thousands of GIs and young families uh, in the late forties and early fifties. And uh, you know, the, there, there had to be a lot of housing created. And so they get into production. And uh, they were terrible um, in, the, in the turn of the 1900s. Uh, uh, there was a lot of uh, housing that was, frankly, awful. It was so jammed, uh, often in the cities, often um, uh, with air that you could hardly breathe. And uh, you've got the factories spewing whatever they spew and housing nearby. And so, you know, they were working on how do we get healthier, better living? And uh, the idea that we separate uses, uh, the automobile was great. The automobile companies basically closed down the streetcars and the streetcar communities. Uh, there was a great vision for life that was walkable back at the turn of the 1900s, mm. uh, turn of the yeah, 1900s. And, but, but the corporations um, uh, and the government basically just shifted our our world and made it so subdivisions and separations became the norm. Mm. And we've been marketed this idea. Uh, and here we are. And we're going, uh, this isn't working. And I think in our time, I think that we're really looking at as people coming to realization of what's really important and its relationships to ourselves, to our families, to our friends, uh, rather than to some idea of what it is to be successful in the world. Well. I love these anthropological discussions um, of how, um, how the, again, this anthropological evolution has influenced specifically uh, our architecture. And, but I have a, I, I'm going to circle back. You made a comment about deciding, you know, how we're going to live or what we need. I think part of the complication of answering that question, and certainly for myself, is our lives changed so drastically? <clears throat> our lives changed so drastically from the point that we become independent from our parents until the point that we leave the world. And so, what we need or what we want from housing really changes drastically in the process. So, can you talk a little bit about um, pocket neighborhoods and how they sort of either support or what what cycle of life do they support or do they support all? Can you talk a little bit about that in our the changing needs of, of really what we need out of a house? Yeah, yeah. Well, again, I think we're going to bring in a little, a little cultural and anthropological perspective uh, because as we become independent, uh, we can do anything. 
and uh, jobs are across town, across the country, and we've got telephone and uh, computers, and it's easy in one sense. And yet the day-to-day, face-to-face reality uh, have different um, needs or different um, advantages. Uh, so, for example, um, I might have been up skiing and broken my leg. Well, who walks the dog? Mm. It's not going to be, you know, my sister who lives, you know, in California. Mm. Uh, it's got to be somebody right nearby. I'm an elderly person, and um, maybe I've taken a fall. Uh, if there's nobody around, if we've got our, our perfect world where we don't have to see any neighbors, this becomes life-threatening. And so uh, I think if we take a look at that uh, and take a look at how the fabric of our environment that we live in is part of um, our deeper health, um, health, social health, personal health, um, health as a community, we're, we've reached a point where we've got a culture that's frayed and, we, huh, and we've become afraid. We've become... Um, not only alone, but lonely. Mm-hmm. And for some people, this leads to uh, high blood pressure. This leads to complications of physical complications. So it's a life or death thing in terms of how our physical environments are set up at the neighborhood scale. Uh, if we are far flung across the city and across the country, we become um, a culture of very lonely, dysfunctional people. Uh, and it doesn't take much to shift this in one sense. Take down your backyard fence, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and just open up a little bit. It's one way. Plant a garden in, your, in, in, the, in the patch of, um, of uh, right-of-way out in front of your, of your house. Just claim it, an act of uh, guerrilla gardening. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what, amazing what happens when you do gardening in, in somewhat public space. You get conversations with neighbors and passers-by. And those conversations might be just simple, casual, minor things. But over time, they grow. And they grow into um, a sense of care and caring and perhaps sharing. You know, look at these tomatoes this season. It's like I've got a, you know, a bounty of tomatoes. You know, I, I wonder if, um, uh, if Fred and Lori, you know, next door would like to share this. This isn't this something. So those casual connections grow into a fabric of deeper connections. And I, I don't, I, they're not friendships as, they much, as much as they are neighborships. Mm. So not, you may not live next to your best friends, but hopefully you're living next to your best neighbors. Mm. Ross. And this to me, this to me is, is critical. And, and I'm going to, let me just name it here. I, I've discovered something that I've, it's not new, it's ancient, and I, I, it's deeper than that. I call it the scale of sociability, that we relate in small groups in a way where a conversation is spontaneous. Uh, we don't have to have an invitation. We don't have to be organized. You see somebody, there's a nod. That gesture is a conversation. There might be just a, um, you know, hi, you know, I, I heard you were out visiting your parents last week. How are they doing? Or um, let me show you these pictures of my kids. Those kind of things happen in small-scale relationships. And the structure of our environments, of our communities, 
can either support or thwart that. And I'm trying to shift this sensibility. Wonderful. Ross, are you familiar? You were speaking about um, guerrilla gardening. Are you familiar with Ron Finley's work? The gorilla I'm not gardener. sure if I am. He's Maybe the, I am. He's the I gorilla. don't know him specifically. Okay. He's the gorilla gardener in, in Los Angeles who became really famous for um, putting up sidewalk gardens in in the spaces between the sidewalk and the road in Los Angeles. I love it. I love it. In order to feed low-income kids who weren't getting fresh vegetables. I love it. That's great. Yeah. Um, I, I'm curious what you think about, so all of the things you talk about that you've said in the last 10 minutes sound freaking fantastic in terms of getting back to the roots of what living is all about. Do you, I mean, from my perspective, it seems like we all are complicit in the problems that you have laid out about current society in the sense that we're kind of going along with the flow of this. Do you, do you acknowledge that or do you think that's a misperception? I think that we are going in the flow of it because we're all out in the river. I mean, how do we not live without a car? Mm. You know, uh, how far do we have to go to a grocery store? Um, how far are the, the, the schools? How far are our friends? Mm-hmm. The structure of our society has us involved in dysfunctional systems. And it's kind of hard to, to, you know, get out of it completely because we're in it. We're in the river. Mm-hmm. So what I'm talking about are little changes and hopefully they grow to, to link more and more. I see. And I think that we need to work individually in terms of I'm going to create my own tiny house on a backyard parcel of land, or I'm going to create a little cluster of tiny houses around a garden like they're doing in Detroit. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to uh, take out some backyard fences or not. I'm going to, I'm going to, <laughs> to connect with my neighbors to do that. So we can begin to, to connect in that way. So these little elements begin to pull together uh, small corners of our um, neighborhood environment to, to make it more functional. Mm. Once that happens for those individuals that are involved, life is completely different. Um, you don't have to change the entire community to change lives for for someone. Hmm. Your your name and your community, um, your communities have actually come up in a lot of conversations that I've been having in the municipality where I live. Um, I've talked to the to the city council in particular and some of the city council members individually. And, and which, um, which city? Sherwood, Oregon. Mm-hmm. And. Um, they're interested in doing it. Um, they're very, very interested in, in integrating a pocket neighborhood. However, we talk about how far we've come now in, in, in isolating ourselves. Getting back and, and doing what you're saying at a, a municipality or a neighborhood level is actually pretty complex um, because we now have all these rules and so forth associated with, with building these and so forth. So if, uh, if I wanted to drop one of your pocket neighborhoods for instance, in the middle of Sherwood um, or in the middle of any town USA, what is the first step? So we talked about small steps and getting to know your neighbors, but from a municipality perspective, what, what is the first step? Who do you befriend? Um, well, the first, when, when we're contacted by someone, uh, maybe they're a landowner or a developer or uh, another architect, and they engage us in a project, um, I say, well, let's, let's get the uh, city planner online and uh, let's have a informal 
pre-anything conversation mm. and just to say, hey, here's where we're coming from. This is what we're thinking. Um, what might be approaches that would fit that are existing already? And what are your needs as a town, as a city? What are your goals? What do you want to do? And typically, planners, city planners, are very pro-community. It's just that they're stuck with decades of zoning that's been encased, and many of them want to shift it. And what we do is to provide examples, like, you know, here's something that is not just absolutely brand new. It's never been done before. This is such a great idea. You've got to try it in your town. No, actually, this has been around for a bit, and, and you can... You can kick the tires and take it for a spin, uh, just like you guys went out to walk around Salish Ponds. <laughs> um, you know, it makes a difference when you can walk it. Yeah. And so we try to work with the city planner uh, immediately and then engage them. And we try to engage them as we bring up the, the, the ideas uh, into plans. Uh, oftentimes, there's an approach which is called like a planned unit development or a planned residential approach. And it says uh, the city has wider leeway if you plan an area as a whole rather than as little separate parcels. Mm -hmm. They've got their zoning code for subdivisions with what you can and cannot do at the, at the lot level. But if you take it at the parcel, larger parcel level, let's say, you know, four lots or six or 10 or 50 lots, uh, you can have greater leeway and the city often has leeway policy-wise to work with planning at that larger level. We do have, uh, I helped write cottage housing codes that will give incentives to homeowners and to builders to build in a more community-oriented way and to build smaller uh, this, this code, basically, um, the way we've, we've been working with it, says that if you limit the size of the homes to 1,000 square feet or less, orient the homes around a shared garden and uh, shelter the cars from uh, the street and maybe neighbors, um, you can build at twice the density in an, any underlying uh, residential zone. I think that's a great incentive. And I think the communities want to have more housing options and they want to have builders step forward and, and homeowners, landowners step forward and saying, okay, you know, I don't need to build uh, bigger houses on tinier lots. I need to build tinier houses mm -hmm. with a bigger shared lot. Mm -hmm. And let's make that work. R Ross, I have the opposite question that Michelle asked. And I'm going to. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Turn off my phone. You might have to get this. I may be wrong a couple of times. Okay. Okay, got that turned off. Okay, that, that, that a little, a little bit. Go ahead no with your call. Sure. Your question. Sure. So, um, how do you introduce a conversation with your neighbor to propose taking down the fence? I mean, it, it, the fence seems like such an American icon in terms of establishing the boundaries of one's free space. to roam space. Mm. Yeah. How do yeah, you? Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, some people are, are, are really bonded to their yeah. fences and to their privacy. And let me just say that this is not for everyone. Mm -hmm. And um, a lot of people really need to have their private retreat away from the world. It's fine. But it may be that, um, that you start with by, you know, inviting your neighbor over for a barbecue. Um, 
or the kids are playing. I mean, kids, kids, uh, they don't care about fences, <laughs> you know, kids and dogs, you know, they link us all. Mm -hmm. Isn't that great? So, um, you know, I start with a conversation and it may be that that grows and saying, you know, Hey, how about, can you imagine, you know, the street out, out front is, uh, not so safe and my kids want to, um, want to play. Maybe we can create something, uh, enticing for them to, want to be uh you know more in a yard and it's not so much take out the fences maybe you move the fences back i don't know how big your backyard would be but let's say you move it back 25 feet then the other person moves it back 25 feet this is in a suburban setting mm -hmm. uh you've got a 50 foot commons mm. maybe it's a community garden to uh create those succulent tomatoes and uh, to do a winter garden, and maybe there's a little greenhouse on it, and maybe there's a barbecue, and maybe there's a um, campfire. Mm -hmm. Those are the kind of things where the property line is still there. Uh, all you do is to just, you know, take up your fence posts, move them back a little bit, and you say, here's, here's what we're going to agree with how this center area is used. Before and that's not a big shift. No, it's and it not. might happen with just one neighbor. And then the other neighbor on the other fence will say, hey, can I do the same? Mm -hmm. And the next one, that looks great. Can I join in too? Mm -hmm. That's a great approach. Mm -hmm. Yeah, before the podcast, we were actually talking about that. Um, yeah. Forming communities and how um, challenging yet simplistic these conversations are. I'm, I appreciate that you're actually boiling it all the way down to very tactical, very specific steps that you can take. Mm -hmm. Because when you talk about integrating mm -hmm. humans together that mm -hmm. aren't family, um, sometimes the, the conversations can get pretty complex. So I appreciate that you're narrowing it down to a very specific list of things you can do or list of ideas of how the to engage. First, the first thing is to um, be, be yourself and be in relationship. Mm. And that is, it's, it comes down to relationship. Mm -hmm. And relationships grow through spontaneous, simple conversations. You know, hey, I've got this uh, grass-fed beef that, that is made on this local farm. You know, and this, the, I was just out in the, you know, that mat, and it's like, come on over. Uh, I've got more than I need for myself, and uh, can you bring some beer? Mm -hmm. uh, you when, know, start with that. Yeah. One day Defensive. I was out. One day I was yeah. out in the street and I was working on my little glamping trailer and someone walked by on the sidewalk and they were talking about it and they said, oh, this is so cute. This is, And I reached my head out and almost surprised them. Oh, there's someone in there, you know. <laughs> Anyways, we started chatting and then they said, oh, our friend of, our friend of ours also has one of these. And so they, they a couple hours later, they all showed back up to see my little glamper trailer and now we're all very close friends. So there you go. Um, it's, it's out in the front yard. It's doing what you love to do. And people are automatically kind of attracted to that. Yeah. So Ross, you when, when you do a new uh, uh, pocket community, do you, do you do anything to kind of enhance people's connections at first outside of the natural design of the way it's going to happen anyway? Or do you just let the community develop organically? Good question. For mm -hmm, there's a couple of threads here. On one end of the spectrum is co-housing, uh, where the residents come together and they say, we want to live in community. In fact, we are living in community, but then they go through three years or four years or whatever to try to find land, try to get financing, try to get, you know, they become planners and 
and uh, para designers and para finance people and para developers <laughs> and so forth. And, and hopefully they'll get through and they'll they'll form this great community. Um, on the other hand, you've got somebody that creates a um, a community setting and then sells it to anybody and and figures well um, build it and they will come. Mm. Uh, frankly. And I, this sounds like a podcast where we can be frank. Yes. Um, <laughs> some of the communities have not been as healthy as I would like. Uh, people come in and they're sold without, or they're resold without uh, others really understanding well, what are expectations here? Um, you know, is this a private retreat or is this some kind of community? Mm. And so when you live in a pocket neighborhood, you are really choosing to to tie in and buy into or rent into um, a sense of being neighbors, mm. uh, having a, a shared life to a degree. Privacy is key, absolutely key. Uh, but the sense that, yeah, this is something that you, a world that you share. Um, now, when I, I've just given a talk at the Congress for the New Urbanism, and I've given a talk at other conferences around um, around this kind of work. And you've got people looking at all the physical elements. What does it take? And we've, we've really boiled it down to here are the seven key patterns for creating pocket neighborhoods at the physical level. But getting that right at the physical level is not enough. I think that there needs to be a way to bring in um, agreements to work out how do we come together and uh, make decisions, large and small, uh, to resolve disputes so they don't um, blow up, um, to celebrate life, to live life. Um, uh, what are the ways in which we come together? And these are, um, these are um, uh, things that are human nature of sorts, but I think we need to become more conscious of them. And when we set out to do a community, to do it more intentionally. And when we do that, I think we've got a far greater possibility of success. It's interesting, Ross. We were talking in a couple of episodes ago with a, a guy who created a community along the lines of what you're describing, but for the homeless um, down in Texas. It's called Mobile Loaves and Fishes. No, oh, I love that. I've Are you familiar that. with him? Yeah. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. He was talking about... Um, People who would come by and just be amazed at what he's done. I think his name is Alan Graham. And, and uh, they would ask, how are you able to bring these people, quote unquote, into a community? And his response was, well, it's probably a lot like your family. And his point was that no matter who you're bringing together, you're always going to have these conflicts. And part of community is figuring out how to work with or live with other people in ways that are harmonious and at the same time minimize kind of like that tension and struggle that comes from being human. Is, is, right. is that along the lines of what you're describing? No, oh, absolutely. So, so one of the things that we talked about before you came on the air w w that Michelle alluded to was the, this idea of community. And it seems like there are so many different ways that people want to live. There are people who would be okay with contributing time to mowing the community grass. There's people who would prefer just not to deal with anybody. There's people who would like their dog to be able to roam around the neighborhood. There's people who like to have a dinner, a group dinner once a month or maybe even once a week. And by the way, you got to cook something in order to be part of this thing. Mm -hmm. and, and so <laughs> Mark's over there 
killing himself. It. So it's like see you in six months. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> so it's it's like um, I presume you have a similar approach to those kind of problems as you do with the how to get the fence taken down. Do you? Oh, absolutely. I, I, one of the things I want to emphasize is that one size doesn't fit all. Mm. You know, um, some people just, you know, living in a close-knit community is not what they need, um, not what they want, and that's fine. Um, others just just desire it, and they've been they're longing for it, and they can't get enough of it. Mm. That's good. Some people are um, single, um, older. They've got certain needs. Others uh, are trying to raise a young family, and they're just inundated with with the needs of raising a family. Different needs, different levels of of um, gregariousness or privacy. Mm. And I think that the best um, community is that there are places for everyone, and that there's no judgment on saying, "Oh, you don't live in a community. Oh, you're one of them. You're just mm-hmm. you're just kind of this stuck in society, you know, person." Or you're a you're a communist. <laughs> you're a you're a free love commune. It's like you know, <laughs> we we don't need to do this to one another, but we need to have opportunities wider than we have in our culture. Yeah. Mark just finished reading the book Grapes of Wrath and he had no idea. I thought you meant our Mark, but you're talking about. No, my Mark. Mark. Yeah, yeah. Like, I've read it, but not just. <laughs> <laughs> my Mark just mm-hmm. got done reading the Grapes of Wrath and didn't know what to expect when he started, but he was very surprised to hear the direction that it took and the sort of uh, community, you know, um, community that was formed out of these people that were uh, basically transients. But, Anyways, it opened up a whole conversation with him and myself about communities and about the complexities and about everybody in the community literally has an entirely different goal mm. for their space. Mm-hmm. And it's that I think that really, even more so than the zoning or how to build the buildings or how to find the land, <laughs> to me, that I think that's the most complex part of forming community. Like, you know, is again, embracing these non-familial eccentricities. Yes. Well, most communities aren't intentional. Right. They're tracked or groups of homes and people move into them and, wonder, and with their own perspectives. Yeah. I wonder if, Ross, would you consider that a community of tracks of home built, built without a sense of community purpose? Yes. Um, if, um, again, scale of sociability, mm. if the homes um, open up in a pedestrian scale to maybe a half a dozen or eight homes, so, and that you, that you engage the commons. Now the commons might be a, a lane, you know, where my, uh, where my folks live is, a is, a supposedly an alley, but it's a, a, a very active kind of place. It's not just a place for garbage and garbage trucks. It's a very living alley. Well, that's a pocket neighborhood because huh. you've got people living informally, um, you know, out their backyards and their gardens and they're engaging with people walking up and down the lane in a small setting. Hmm. You know, I think there may be 10 houses on the lane. So you're not necessarily talking about a cul-de-sac, right? A pocket neighborhood is people with their households living around a shared space. Hmm. Okay. It's not saying these are tiny houses. It's not saying these are cottage style houses. It's not saying this is a garden. It's saying a shared space. Mm Mm-hmm. Over in, I was over in Europe um, and in Holland, they've got, as I was researching my book, uh, Pocket Neighborhoods, 
Um, this idea goes back hundreds of years. And there are uh, places where they've got these absolutely beautiful Dutch um, um, things opening onto a vonerf. Um, actually, they're simple, you know, uh, apartments opening onto a vonerf, a V-O-O-N-E-R-F, something like that. And what it means is a, is a, um, a place where it's a pedestrian world where cars are granted access by invitation. Wow. Uh, uh, so it's shared space. Uh, it's, you know, you can drive right up to your door. But it's a pedestrian space. And you've got a series of 10 apartments opening onto a vonerf. That's a, that's a pocket neighborhood. Well, I have been doing a little bit more travel than normal the last couple of years. And I, I, it appears to me that the people that are most likely to have fences or specifically solid or tall fences are the ones that have smaller lot sizes. Um, in the neighborhood that I live in, everybody has a fence. Everybody has, you know, maybe 10 to, 10 to 8 to 10 feet between houses. Um, everybody is really, really um, almost defensive about their fence lines and, <laughs> <laughs> you know, that type of thing. Um, but when I travel to other places and I see these huge sprawling, like one, particular, one place in particular, I remember, Wilmington, Ohio, like all these homes, there were huge, huge lots and one just flowed right into the next incident. There was almost no delineation between them. Do you think that because of the fact that, um, again, anthropologically or maybe even financially, we want our own house, but we got these big houses on these small lots. Do you think that's created that sort of uh, need for a fence or desire for a fence? This is my space. Um, because it is yep, so small, yep. we feel more protective of it. Yep, yep, yep. I think that uh, in some way, um, poor design and poor planning has led to an invasion of privacy. And so you, wow. you can counter that by getting stronger um, locks and taller fences. Uh, uh, but you can also solve that by design. So people get really upset about, oh, density is a bad word. Well, density is a bad word because of, of poor design. Density is not solved by distance. Density is solved by design. So, for example, um, if your um, small house has windows on all sides to bring the most light in, and the next one uh, is also the same thing, so you open up you know, uh, the curtains in the morning, and oh, <laughs> there's Joe <laughs> opening up his curtains, looking at you. How is your sleep? Any dreams? About like, your pants. Okay, that's an invasion of privacy. <laughs> so instead, imagine the homes designed so that they dovetail. Mm. So one side is closed. Maybe you've got a skylight to bring light in because you want a lot of light. And the other side is open mm. to the side yard. And the side yard goes all the way up to the face of the next building. The property line can be five feet away or whatever. It's tight. But you can have a use easement to allow an exclusive use of that property right up to the face of the building. And so you've got a usable side yard, an open side yard, and the houses one to another to another to another dovetail together. Mm. Now, the other thing uh, along with this, and privacy, we can talk about community, we can get all fuzzy and warm, but, you know, we all know that community has uh, a downside. Yeah. You know, 
it's claustrophobic, it's in your face, it's fights, it's whatever. It, I mean, things can spiral downward pretty quickly. But if we begin to honor, really name and honor privacy and respect for one another, I think that we're going to allow ourselves to open up um, more easily to each other. And so we, we look at between the, uh, let's say, the street, you come into a, uh, a shared courtyard. And so in the passage between the street, the public space, and the shared realm of the commons, there'd be some kind of a passage, a gateway, probably not a locked gate, but depending upon where it is, it might be. And then between the shared commons and your front door it would be five more layers. Mm. So, for example, there might be a low perennial hedge. Um, that's one, a low fence that you could step over. It marks, it delineates personal space, maybe a low rail, you know, marking a front fence to a front yard. The front yard is three. You've got a living sized porch with a frame of the porch with a, a railing that's just high enough to perch on, not a, a barricade rail that would be 42 inches high or 36 inches high. It might mm. be 24 or 28 inches high. Mm. You don't need a railing. It the porch is less than 28 inches off the ground. You don't even need a railing. We almost always put a railing in because it's part of the defensible um, layer of personal space. And the porch is a room. It's not just this key fumbling porch that I talked about, but an extension <laughs> of the house. And it's also the other way around, the extension of the community in. Mm. You can step out onto the porch and you're stepping into community but you're stepping into community with several layers between you and the wider community. Mm. And when the, um, the layers of personal space continue on the interior of the home, design, again, design, density by design, you've got active rooms like the kitchen, uh, the dining room facing the shared space. And you've got private rooms like the den and, and um, maybe your sleeping space off the back of the home mm. or maybe in a loft or up above and it might open onto this private secluded backyard and so the layering goes from complete privacy to uh, engaging the shared commons more in more degrees and so not only do the houses dovetail together but they've got these layers of personal space and they've, they've got this hierarchy of, of public to private and when those kind of elements are brought into a design um, then we can come out and we can be with one another in a, in a freer way because it's by choice. If we don't have choices, we are going to be, feel like we're, we're pushed into community mm -hmm. rather than chose to step into community. That's the difference. Well, Ross, we really, I'm really thankful that you came on the show and we want to stick to our time commitment. It's a little past 11. Um, well, let's do this again. Oh, I Absolutely. would love to. Would love to have you back. <laughs> and um, listeners, this was a rare treat for us to have someone of of Ross's stature on our show. Sounds like we're going to have him back, which is fantastic. Um, thank you for listening again. And if you have any ideas on people we should be interviewing, please let us know at our contact page on at uh, tinyhousepodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks, everybody. See ya. See you on the flip side. Thank you for listening to Tiny House Podcast. To find us online, go to tinyhousepodcast.com, where you will also find our show notes, if we remember to put them there. Our logo was designed by the amazing Carolyn Main. Our website is hosted by the gang at Sightcast. Our theme music is by Oma Studio. Please go to iTunes and give us a five-star rating, or whatever, you tiny house-loving bastard. 
Tiny House Podcast is probably made in Portland, Oregon. <laughs>